0: Thank mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast of TechEU. This is our episode number 143, recorded on November 19th, 2019. Today we will talk about Tesla's Gigafactory in Germany, about a wave of new funds in Europe, about privacy issues on health websites, and much more. We will also run a conversation with Jan Bormans, the CEO at European Startup Network. I am your host, Andre Degler, joined today remotely by our research lead, Natalie Novik. Unfortunately, Natalie was not able to join me for a live recording, but she did send her segments separately, so we are going to hear her voice in a few minutes on this uh, podcast. Now, if you are listening to this podcast while at Slush in Helsinki, you can also hear our voices by coming to the Google Cloud podcast booth. It is located right next to the meeting area entrance, and there we are going to be conducting a series of interviews with some of the most amazing speakers that you will hear in the next episodes. So really come anytime during the conference days. We are going to arrange for a few headsets outside of the booth so you will be able to listen in on the conversations in the real time. Now, without further ado, let us talk about what has happened over the past seven days in Europe. And I will—I was going to talk about Tesla. So last week, you probably know, Elon Musk announced that Tesla will build a new so-called Gigafactory, or in plain English, a car plant in the German town of Grünheide. That's not far from Berlin. This will be Tesla's fourth plant after two facilities in the US and one in China. According to Business Insider, uh, this means actually that Tesla. Tesla Tesla plans to build more plants than any other established car manufacturer in the world. That was an interesting thing, I I had no idea. Now, the new factory uh, will cost about 4 billion euros, but it is also expected that Tesla will receive some 300 million euros in subsidies from the EU. The construction is slated to start before April 2020 to have the plant up and running by the end of 2021. For that to happen, however, Tesla would need to send quite a bit of paperwork, which hasn't happened. Happened yet, according to the media. It is now known that Musk also considered the UK as a place to build a gigafactory but then decided against it. In an interview for Auto Express, he said that, I quote, Brexit uncertainty made it too risky to put a gigafactory in the UK, the quote ends. The Netherlands, the country where I live, also tried its best to get Musk to build the factory here, and it it would actually be in the north of the country, not far from the the city of Groningen, where I live. And the country even spent 1.2 million euros on a special hyper-targeted sort of marketing campaign that was called Top Dutch to convince Tesla that it is the best location for the plant. That, as we see now, did not happen. And I do expect that the local media are not going to be happy with the government for spending the much money now tesla's decision to bring the gigafactory to germany means of course that company is serious about europe It is, however, somewhat surprising that uh, Musk decided to build a plant from scratch rather than buy an existing one. Uh, Matthew Debord has written a good overview for Business Insider outlining why, in his opinion, this plan makes no sense at all. Now, according to Debord, uh, there are strong indications that Europe basically does not need any more car manufacturing plants. There is no demand for them. Even the existing ones mostly work at around 80% of of their full capacity at the moment. And in addition to that, it does not seem like Tesla has any sort of know-how as to how to build a factory that would be more efficient than the existing ones. Quite the contrary, actually. Now, I'm also curious uh, about the rationale behind this decision and whether there is one at all and whether it's uh, anything but a sort of a marketing stunt that has a goal of uh, bringing uh, Tesla and Musk uh, on the agenda of the media. Another potential issue, though, for Tesla is a very different working culture in Germany compared to the US. American media have run numerous reports about the conditions at the company's facilities that included 70-hour working weeks for employees, toilet lines, uh, production lines hacked together in tents, and so on and so forth. That wouldn't fly in Germany for sure with its extremely rich tradition of uh, labor rights movement. So at this moment, there are still more questions than answers regarding Tesla's German Gigafactory. And to finish this segment, I only wanted to give you a nice quote from another Business Insider story on the topic, which reads as follows. The quote begins, if one were to take everything that Musk said seriously, Tesla would no longer be listed on the stock exchange, would have delivered 500,000 cars last year, and would have already made all of its vehicles fully autonomous. The quote ends. Now, I'm going to give the floor to Natalie with uh, her recorded segment for this week.
0: Hi, everyone. It's Natalie here. And first of all, apologies to you and to Andre. I'm sorry I couldn't join you live today. So I'm coming to you remotely during this slush week, thanks to a internet outage at my house, which led to a whole cascade of issues that resulted in this called-in segment this week. But I felt it was really important for me to get on the podcast because over the last eight days or so, we've heard some massive announcements when it comes to new funding for European VC funds. And there's some really exciting times to come for European founders looking to raise. So I wanted to share some of the things that have been going on and to give you the lowdown. The announcements kicked off on November 12th when Angular Ventures announced the close of a new $41 million fund to be invested in enterprise technology companies in Europe and in Israel. Angular was only founded last year, but they invest in companies at the early stage from day one until series A. And they're led by a group of really highly skilled investors that are traveling constantly all across the continent um, and find really interesting deals. But later that day, Balderton Capital announced a new 400000000 million early-stage fund for European startups. Balderton, of course, is a huge player when it comes to supporting European technology companies. They claim to be Europe's most active Series A investor, and this fund is aimed at continuing supporting companies at Series A, a, quote, critical point in a startup's journey. Today, Balderton has investments in more than 90 companies across 15 European countries, This latest announcement represents the firm's seventh early-stage fund since their formation in 2000 and brings their total funds under management to over $3 billion. But not to be outdone, two days after Balderton's announcement on November 14th, EQT Ventures closed their second fund at 660 million euros, EQT Ventures 2 is aimed at supporting companies at multiple stages and is sector agnostic, specifically to help startups scale out of Europe as well as to help your U.S. companies scale into Europe. The firm has offices across a number of prominent tech hubs in Europe, including Berlin, Stockholm, London, and Amsterdam, as well as an office in San Francisco. But then on Monday, the announcements continued. So on November 18th, there were three announcements totaling over 600 million euros. First, the Borski Fund in the Netherlands announced the close of a 21 million euro fund exclusively to support female entrepreneurs. As you might remember on this podcast a few weeks ago, we shared the Fundright movement taking place in the Netherlands. And this fund is a direct outcome of that to support more female founders. Next, MMC Ventures, based in London, shared a new £100 million scale-up fund to provide expansion capital to their later-stage portfolio companies. But later that day, Northzone B.C., announced a new $500 million fund targeted at consumer and enterprise companies overthrowing legacy technologies. Northzone, of course, is a long-term player when it comes to investing in early-stage tech. European technology companies. They've been around since 1996 and famously were one of the first investors into Spotify. All of this news is good news for early stage companies in Europe that are looking to raise private investment with over 1.6 billion euros just disclosed in the last 10 days. And it's clear that for a number of firms, right after Web Summit and right before Slush is the perfect time to announce a new fund. But why now and what exactly is going on here? Is it slush magic or is it that Christmas has come early for early stage tech companies in Europe? Well, for one take from the ecosystem, Christian Janssen of Futuristic VC has a few theories. And he's written a piece titled Before the American Flood that hints at what he thinks is going on. He suggests that these big announcements are indicative of the fact that European VCs will need to compete even harder to support the best companies in the coming years, as more and more American VCs are coming over to invest in European startups. The announcements are timely because, similarly, last week we heard rumors that Sequoia, which some consider the archetype of the Silicon Valley venture capital firm, is looking to back more European companies. And according to Business Insider, they may be opening a London office. Sequoia, based in Menlo Park, California, in the heart of Silicon Valley, has been supporting technology companies for a long time, since 1972. And they've backed names that will be familiar to you, like Atari, Nvidia, Dropbox, and MongoDB. So the fact they're looking to open an office in Europe is pretty exciting. In the past years, they've opened offices in Israel, China, and India, but not yet over here. So to give you an estimate of their size and the capital they're able to deploy, their most recent fund announced last year was estimated to be $8 billion. They're really trying to compete with SoftBank's Vision Fund as one of the biggest investors in technology companies globally. While these fund announcements over the past few days are significant, European VC will need to have even bigger fund announcements if they want to compete with the generally much better funded American VCs for the best deals. Jensen suggests that the home field advantage that European VCs have enjoyed for a long time won't last long if more and more U.S. firms are coming to invest in Europe. It's a compelling point, but ultimately, these big announcements and the suggestion that more and more American VCs might be coming to invest in Europe can only be a positive benefit for European startups. I hope the opening up of more funding and greater competition will encourage European VCs to have more confidence to take even bigger risk on great founders and companies and to break out of their safe zone a little bit more. No matter what, 2020 will be an exciting year. And founders, if you're looking to raise some funding next year, you should be polishing your pitch decks over this holiday season.
1: Natalie, thank you so much for sharing this. This is a really interesting development. I have also noticed that uh, the new fund announcements uh, were just uh, coming and coming and coming. And there were more uh, over this uh, last uh, few weeks, over this last couple of weeks uh, than I have seen over the last couple of months. Now, uh, it is time for an interview of the week. And it's a conversation between our editor, Robin Wouters, and uh, Jan Bormans, the CEO at the European Startup Network. Let's listen together and we will be back in a few minutes with our recommendations
2: hello hello this is robin walters for the tech.eu podcast and i'm sitting down with jan Bormans, who runs the european startup network uh, welcome jan uh,
3: thanks for having me it's a real pleasure what is the european startup network So the European Startup Network is, in fact, the uh, startup uh, association of associations. Let me explain that. Uh, So uh, in every country, approximately, let's say, 10 years ago, when uh, startups really started to ramp up, in every country, you had some kind of association, a grassroots association that uh, came into existence. And uh they are in different uh, shapes and colors, but they all share this grassroots idea of uh, having to do something for uh, startups. And this is great. This was certainly a, a positive evolution. But then, of course, we are in Europe, and it became increasingly difficult for policymakers. To talk to all these associations uh, separately, and so for them it was uh, there was in fact this need, both for the startups as for the policymakers, to have a more uh, unique voice of the startups, uh, and that's when the national startup associations decided to um, create the European Startup Network. And so currently we have uh, twenty-eight uh, national members all over Europe, and uh, we're happy to be in this uh, situation currently.
2: Right. Does it matter to you whether these national startup associations are government funded or even government agencies or whether they're, they're independent?
3: So indeed. So because of the, the very nature of how they came into existence, uh, they're very heterogeneous and it matters. So I don't want to bother you with the details in our statutes. We have uh, some conditions on who can join, but I think for us, it's mostly important that these are really organizations representing the startups. And that they have a degree of independence. That's in a nutshell my answer. All right.
2: And how long has a uh, ESN? Uh, I'm going to call it ESN just for uh, uh, for ease. Um, but how long has the ESN been around? Uh, so we are currently uh, been around for something like four years. And do you feel like you've already made an impact in those years? And if so, what impact do you think you ma- you made? I
3: think there was really an impact to raise the awareness level, for instance, at the uh, European policymakers, what startups are, why they're important. I, yeah, I think that's the greatest achievement. And I also think that an achievement was that for the different associations to realize that they were not alone. Yeah. And we also exchange best, best practices so that problems you encounter in, in one country are maybe very similar to another country. And uh, it's very inspiring then to hear uh, how the other country solved it. And also just to know that others have similar problems and use can sometimes be uh, comforting,
2: of yeah, course. Yeah, that's true. And, and can you share some of these best practices that you've seen? Like if, if you would start a national startup association uh, for Belgium today, what would you sort of uh, take into account? Yes. I think Belgium is uh,
3: probably one of the most uh, difficult examples to talk about, so that's maybe a good uh, a good thing to do. Because Belgium is of course a, um, a complex country uh, with uh, different uh, language groups and uh, uh, different governments. But I think there my recommendation for such a complex country would be that focus on the core and the core is startups. And startups are often not linked to one political movement or the other, but they want to grow, they want to have passion for what they do, and so this is what should be fostered. So, uh, my my recommendation would be try to be uh, really on the side of the startups.
2: Great. Um. So, talking about the the policymakers um, in question, like, do you think they now that they're aware that there is such a thing as startups and they're starting to sort of take into account entrepreneurs and investors when it comes to implementing policies or changing existing ones? Do you feel that we're heading in the right direction in general? So
3: I think the short answer is yes, but because Europe is such a sometimes complex uh, thing, the steps we take are sometimes baby steps. Of course we also have to see now what the uh, what the new commission uh, will actually do, uh, so that's not always very clear, but I think that if you look at policy over the past 5 years, there the steps are mostly in the right direction. Sometimes with missteps, but I think um, there is no question that's in the minds of the policymakers that uh, startups are important, uh, essential, if we want to be able to keep our level of competitiveness with respect to other uh, economic blocks in the world. And that's important. I don't think anyone is doubting that.
2: No, same here. I mean, we look at the numbers a lot. So we see we see the growth. We see the the stories. We talk to a lot of entrepreneurs and investors and policymakers. So we see things slowly heading in the right direction as well. Uh, but I'd love to get your perspective on, like, if I would ask you this basic question, like, what do you think the European tech ecosystem looks like today? And what can it be in the future? Then what would be your answer?
3: Yes. So the um, I think the strength and weakness of Europe is that we are heterogeneous and fragmented. It's a strength because it means we we don't uh, bet on a single horse and we have uh, different cultures that give different insights and different kinds of passion. But of course, sometimes you don't have critical mass. So I think that initiatives that um, try to overcome this fragmentation and try to connect the European ecosystems, that's where we should continue to head for because the success of startups the the success of scale-ups is tightly linked to the ecosystem they're in and currently sometimes the ecosystem they perceive is their city or their region sometimes their country but not very often europe and so europe should be their ecosystem not a fragmented one
2: right so well then imagine that you're on the policy side and you have all the power and all the money and all the resources in the world Uh, what's the what would be your focus in in making life for startup entrepreneurs in europe better
3: let me reflect for one moment because it's a fantastic <laughs> idea for a while. No, um, I think entrepreneurs very often um, have the passion and they know what they do. So I think we should take away hurdles from them. That's something I would certainly do as a policymaker, really uh, making sure all administrative hurdles are, are gone. Uh, and then I would invest in yeah, connecting investors, startups, uh, universities, centers of uh excellence uh, research centers and yeah maybe uh, make sure that there is a vision and that everyone understands the vision and adheres adheres to the vision and not as something being static but as something being dynamic and driven
2: uh, bottom up right and maybe uh, let's switch it around the devil's advocate question if i'm a lone startup entrepreneur starting my own business in in a very small uh, corner of europe why should i care about european policy at all
3: so I think that uh the fact that we are in a single market uh, offers tremendous opportunities for startups um, so I think that you should care because one know what possibilities are there with respect to market access but also uh fortunately there are also often uh public funding that are available but that you're not always aware of um, I've seen recently different initiatives where uh the European Commission wants to raise the awareness about, look, guys, this and this instrument is available. Please use it. Uh, and I'm happy also to see that they do this more and more in like uh, Eastern Europe. Because indeed, if you're not aware of the possibilities, you will certainly not not use them. For some of these instruments, still there is a lot of uh, bureaucracy and, and forms to fill in, but also that's slowly improving, I think.
2: No, I agree. And uh, I think it's awareness from both sides. Uh, that can be improved a lot. All right. Any final thoughts on... I would like the European startup ecosystem to evolve and maybe how ESN can play an active role in that in the future. Uh
3: so uh, you have noticed that I'm quite positive by nature. Uh so I would like that um we keep this positivism uh and that we are proud of being European startups and uh from ESN I think we certainly want to contribute to that and contribute to that. So uh, I look forward to uh to our future.
2: Fantastic, Jan. Thank you so much for your time and joining the TechEU podcast. And uh, best of luck with ESN 2020 as well. Thank you so much.
1: Welcome back to the podcast of TechEU, episode number 143. And it is time for recommendations of the week. So I wanted to share a story uh, that was run in the Financial Times and uh, is uh, titled How Top Health Websites Are Sharing Sensitive Data with Advertisers. It is an interesting piece of research that shows graphically how some of the most popular British healthcare websites may be sharing sensitive user data with third-party companies. The websites uh, covered in the story include uh, WebMD, Healthline, BabyCenter, British Heart Foundation, and Bupa, and many others. And some of these websites were actually caught sharing sensitive data and unique user IDs with third parties, as well as dropping cookies before any user consent for that was given at all. And I think the only like 100% clean website in the whole investigation was the NHS. Of course, this one is very relevant for our listeners in the UK. But also, I think it's just a good illustration uh, in general, that despite the GDPR and other regulations in place, there is still lots of shady stuff going on. And uh, while that's the case, it's always a good idea to additionally protect your privacy while checking for symptoms or interacting with uh, health services online. There's a quote uh, from the story that kind of sums it up. It's attributed to Tim Libert, a computer scientist at Carnegie Mellon University, who actually created the tool, one of the tools, that is, uh, that was used by the FT investigation. The quote begins, the internet has turned into a privacy wasteland, but there's a suspension of disbelief in the ad industry. Companies say they are GDPR compliant. There is a codependency where everybody pretends everything is okay, but the deep technical architecture is fundamentally incompatible with the right to privacy. The quote ends. So check out the piece. I'm going to leave the link in the show notes. It's really interesting and fascinating in a way. Now, Natalie, what is your recommendation of the day?
0: For my recommendation this week, I wanted to share this initiative that you can find on, online under the hashtag #EveryFounder. in the tech world and in startups, there's quite a bit of generosity which makes this thing work. It takes people making introductions for you people sharing their expertise people putting together meetups, matchmaking events, and volunteering at events. And there's quite a bit of sharing and giving happening. And there's also quite a a lot of unpaid labor going on as well, that without these innovations and the startups that come out of them would be a lot less further along. So I wanted to shine a light on a new initiative from the north of England called Every Founder. And it's a new project started by Paul Smith, the founder of Ricochet AI, which is working to get serial entrepreneurs and scale-up founders the chance to mentor early-stage folks in the ecosystem. And it's a really great thing and something that connects the expertise that's come out of the ecosystem with those that really can benefit most from it. And I wanted to share it because it got me thinking that as we're getting into the holidays and for some, it's the season of giving, and maybe it's a chance to think about what expertise you have that you can share with others and find a way that you too can give back to the ecosystem. So I wanted to recognize Paul for starting that and for giving back to the community and taking the initiative to do that and really identifying a need and seeing where he could provide value there. But also, as we're getting deeper into November and where I'm from, it's also the season of saying thanks. So if you've benefited from someone or a community activity or meetup or something similar that's brought you or your startup along, um, maybe it's a good time just to reach out and recognize them just to say thanks um, and to express your gratitude. This tech community wouldn't function or work nearly as well as it does without so many people giving back their time, expertise, and attention. So maybe it's a good chance to take the time to let them know. So that's it from me this week, and thank you all for listening. And I hope to see you at Slush, but if not, I'll be back next week and um, looking forward to um, sharing what we learned with you then.
1: This is also it for today's podcast. I do hope you enjoyed it. If you did, tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. If you are not a subscriber yet, subscribe today on your favorite podcast app. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse, That is sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at Andri at TechEU and Natalie at TechEU. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the rest of the week and talk to you next Wednesday. Bye-bye. oh, 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 oh